Amen. Thank you, ladies. Great thought. Great job. Uh, no matter who you are here, if you're like me and my wife, who got saved as adults and raised our children to know the Lord, whether you are someone who started out like us or someone who's saying, you know what, I'm going to give my kids something I have, let me encourage you, you can do that. There's grace from God to have the kind of home that the Lord intends and wishes we all had. Good, please get in your Bible, if you would, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 780. We'll be on page 780, John chapter 2. Everything, of course, in the Bible is inspired and preserved for us through God's providential care over the centuries. Uh, the most of us find the New Testament uh, easier to understand and apply all the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All of the Bible is like that, and yet we know that there are some places in the Bible that are easier to understand, some places that are more applicable to us today. They are mountain peaks, so to speak, that rise above the plateau of the inspired scriptures and uh, great text, if you were uh, to say, in the Word of God. And uh, God helping us, we will on Sunday mornings be spending quite some time on great texts in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Gospel of John. Last Sunday morning, we talked from the book of Jeremiah about the power of one individual. We saw how God challenged the people of Judah through Jeremiah to find even one individual, one man who sought justice and loved truth. And God offered to spare the city of Jerusalem if there was even one man like that. Unfortunately, the city of Babylon uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so at some point, not too distant from when Jeremiah spoke those words, there was not even one person in that city who loved justice and sought truth. Uh, and though God's judgment comes because of the behavior of wicked people, we rejoice that God's judgment will be postponed when God's people decide to live righteous and faithful lives. We saw how one man, Adam, <laughs> brought sin and death into our world, one, the power of one individual for bad. We saw how one man, Jesus, paid for the sins of the world and so the world could be saved if they would choose him, the power of one individual for good. We rejoiced in the power of one faithful follower of Jesus and challenged one another to be that one person in our family, in our ministry, and in our country so God would delay the destruction that people's sins have earned them. This morning, we return to the Gospel of John for a mountain peak there. Uh, the Gospel of John is my favorite book. I, I love the Bible, but of all the books in the Bible, the Gospel of John is my favorite. Uh, this morning, we are going to read a bit more than usual because uh, this story is not as familiar as some other Bible stories, and I use the word story loosely. I don't mean fictional story or a uh, story of a parable. This is a historical account of a few events in one of the days in the life and ministry of Jesus early in his ministry. And this story is a mountain peak because it displays an often overlooked aspect of Christ's character and uh, his love for something that many people do not value at all. Let me ask you this morning, with a, as I begin with a question, how important is the house of God to you? 
I mean, you're here, and so unless you were forced to be here because your parents made you come, or uh, unless you just came for family and friends, I mean, you chose to be here. How important is the house of God to you? Uh, You know, there are a lot of healthy people in our culture for whom God's house is optional, and quite frankly, they place very little value on the importance of what goes on here. I don't know how many of you use it, but we print a bulletin every uh, week here. We have several people that work hard on our bulletin, but despite our best efforts, there are times when we have typos and bad grammar and bloopers that find their way into our bulletin. Uh, and we're not unique in that. I mean, churches that have bulletins, they have people that work hard to make them right, and despite that, there are bulletin bloopers. Uh, Let me give you a couple of those. These allegedly were actually in church bulletins. Here's the first one. The Low Self-Esteem Support Group will meet Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Please use the back door. Here's another one. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. Here's another one. During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon when Brother Stubbs supplied our pulpit. (laughs) Here's the last one. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. (laughs) You know, churches have bulletins because some people care about what's going on in the Lord's house. How important is the Lord's house to you? In fact, let me ask you another question. Do you know how important the Lord's house was to Jesus? If you learned that the Lord's house was important to Jesus, would you change how important it was to you? Now, for the most part, the word church is used in the New Testament to refer to a called-out assembly of baptized believers, but there are a couple of occasions when that word is used to speak about the building where we assemble. Did, did you know there was only one time in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus when he ever did anything that someone might consider to be violent? He, he, he was incredibly meek, incredibly gentle, but one time. Now, now listen, if Jesus were here, he would never uh, say it was okay to forcibly make people uh, be baptized or to believe on him. He, he would not be for that. Like what went on in the Crusades when people forced uh, converts, so to speak, of Jews and Muslims, he would be absolutely against that. But you know, there was one time when Jesus did something that would be considered violent. What was it when that happened? What was the one time in the life of the Savior whose ministry in person was characterized by meekness and gentleness? It's a good question. If you're able to stand, if you would stand please this morning in honor of God's word. The title of my thought this morning is Jesus' zeal for God's house. Jesus' zeal for God's house. John chapter 2, we're going to read a little bit more than than usual, so kind of brace yourself, it'll be okay. Uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found 
in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence and make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign shewest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Thank you, you might be seated. There are three main Jewish feasts. Every Jewish male was supposed to travel to Jerusalem to be the te- at the temple for these three feasts. And Jews at that time, if they had faith in God, basically what they would do is they would obey what God had said, and then when they sinned and failed to obey what God had said, they would offer one of the blood sacrifices that he required when someone sinned. Now, traveling to these feasts, it was kind of a family event. And people with uh, faith, parents with faith, they would all travel there for uh, these celebrations. And the biggest of those three celebrations was a Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover, it was a holiday, so to speak, that God had instituted to commemorate uh, the last plague on the nation of Egypt, the death of of the firstborn in any house where there was not the blood of a lamb applied. Uh, This was a feast to remember that great uh, event. Now, of course, today we know that that lamb that uh, they slayed uh, back in Egypt uh, was all a picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God. But Jesus, who was not as many picture him to be, to be a rebel against government and a rebel against religion, understand, as a faithful Jew who kept the law of Moses, he went to Passover, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it's about 130 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus' ministry was based, to Jerusalem. And by the way, that's a long way for the transportation methods of that day. Uh, The Bible doesn't say how many people were there for Passover there in Jerusalem. Uh, But Jews from hundreds of miles around and proselytes, people who were Gentiles who believed on Jehovah, the God of the Jews, they would travel hundreds of miles uh, to be there for these feasts. Uh, We don't know if this is accurate or not. It seems inaccurate to me. I don't know how it could possibly be true. But the historian, Jewish historian Josephus said that there were 200 and 56,500 lambs offered. Uh, It was one lamb per household. And so whether that number is accurate or not, this much we do know for sure, is that for Passover, whether it was this one or the one on which he was crucified, there were hundreds of thousands and maybe even as many as a million people in and around Jerusalem for the event that occurred in the text we just read. 
But understand, because the Jews, in many cases, they traveled hundreds of miles, they didn't want to travel with their sacrifice. So instead of bringing a lamb with them or bringing an oxen with them, they would go and they would purchase their sacrifice in the temple. And what the priests and Levites at that time had done is they, number one, they made it illegal to buy one of those sacrifices with your own money. You had to buy temple coinage. And so you would exchange your money for the temple coinage, and they gave you a terrible exchange rate. And then you had to purchase these sacrifices with this temple coinage, and they charged exorbitant amounts for the sacrifices. And so what on the surface seemed to be a helpful thing, it was actually ripping people off and causing people, when they would come to the temple, just to be a little bit bitter and angry at the way their, quote, spiritual leaders were handling the situation. Hear me when I say few things anger our Creator more than someone misleading someone else who is seeking Him or hurts someone or hinders someone who comes to His house who wants to worship in spirit and truth. So because our Creator hates that, notice uh, Jesus is angry and he fixes the problem in verses 14 to 16. It says, and he found in the temple those, notice the subject in verse 14 is those. Found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them. So if the subject in verse 14 is those, the people, the them in verse 15 is the people. It says he drove them out of, them all out of the temple and, just to be sure we understand what's going on, and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now this was early in Jesus' ministry. As best as we can tell, his disciples hadn't followed him for any more than six months at this particular occasion. And so understand, they believed him to be the Son of God, they believed him to be the Messiah, but they didn't really know him well, yet they were learning of him, they were disciples. And so imagine how this would have left them. Can you see their eyes get wide? Can you see them looking around to see who in their family saw this guy they decided to follow as Jesus do what we just read about him doing. Uh, I mean, imagine the social shock of this all. You, you know, shouting in the temple, animals loose, running everywhere, coins jingling on the stone floor, and people scrambling to pick them up. I mean, imagine the, uh, the turmoil uh, that was caused by this. By the way, don't be upset at me telling you Jesus made a scourge of small cords and drove them out of there. This wasn't a scourge like a long leather whip with pieces of bone and glass on it like the Romans scourged him with. This was a small scourge, of course. But don't be angry at me because I talk about something the Bible says Jesus did. By the way, it kind of makes me feel like it's a big deal to God when we're unfriendly to visitors. Kind of makes me feel like it might be a big deal to God if we ever feel like we have something called our seat. You don't own one. Say, I, I don't care what you give. I don't know what anybody gives. I don't want to know what anybody gives. You don't own a seat. 
And I hope it would never come out of anybody's mouth towards someone in your seat. Hey, you're in my seat. By the way, there's always seats in the front row. This was the house of Jesus' father. And he cared deeply about what went on there and how people were treated there. Hey, listen, again, think about the commotion, the animals running, the shouts, the tables slamming on the ground. Listen, none of these Levites were singing at that moment, oh, how I love Jesus. No, nobody was thinking about, wow, Jesus just gets us. The disciples, they saw Jesus cleansing the temple as a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy from Psalm 69.9. Notice that in verse 17. It says, and the disciples remembered that it was written, uh, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now the Jews who were affected by this, they didn't debate that the temple needed to be cleansed, but they did question Jesus' authority to cleanse it, and so they asked for a sign to approve his authority. In verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign shewest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now, uh, they knew what they were doing wasn't right. They, they don't question that the temple needs to be cleansed. They question Jesus' right to do it. Uh, the signs they were looking for was not the signs God intended uh, to give them. On several occasions, they asked Jesus for a sign. See, what they thought they wanted was they thought they wanted to see the sun turn dark or the moon turn dark or the moon to turn red that are linked with the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and they had no idea that the day of the Lord begins in darkness rather than the light of Christ's kingdom. They had no idea. They had no idea that even though Jesus didn't do these signs in the heavens that they thought they wanted to see, he did signs, and those signs he did demonstrated his personhood, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. They demonstrated that his message was true. They asked for a sign, and instead of catering to their expectations or backing down, Jesus spoke about the sign of his resurrection in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. By the way, the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus, they were not plan B. It, it, it was not God sent the Messiah to the Jews and the Jews rejected him, so God's up there saying, oh no, they rejected their Messiah, what am I gonna do now? That's not what happened. Uh, listen, there was a plan of God all along that Jesus Christ would come, be rejected by most, and die for our sins, and rise from the dead. It was God's plan all along. And Jesus knew it even then. And he says, hey, that will be the sign you get. Now, <laughs> the unsaved Jews and crowd, they didn't understand and that's why they say in verses 20, uh, then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. The Jews didn't understand what he said. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't try to explain it to them. His disciples didn't understand what he said at that time. They didn't yet understand the Old Testament messianic prophecies of the suffering of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah. They didn't understand that yet, but they did understand three years later 
when he died on the cross on the skull-shaped hill called Calvary and rose from the dead. But by the way, sometimes when we hear the truth, it takes a bit of time for us to digest it and, and understand it. And, and that's what's going on here. They didn't immediately understand it. They understood it later. And, and if you're here and you really want to understand the Scriptures, God's Spirit will teach you. Most people don't really want to. Most people want enough of God in their life to keep them out of hell and to leave them live their life however they want. Jesus did miracles that day that are not recorded, and many believed on him because of it. In verses 23 and 24, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Uh, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Now, the Gospel of John records seven miracles between the beginning of Christ's ministry and his crucifixion. Uh, and here, uh, it says he did them that day. We're not told what they were. Uh, but as a result of the ones he did, and by the way, I believe Jesus did thousands of miracles. We're not told what they were, but we are told that many believed in him because of that. And then interestingly enough, it's to me one of the vague statements of the, of the New Testament in verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. It's even in, more interesting because the word believe in 23, uh, many believed in his name, is the same word as commit in verse 24, but Jesus did not commit, in, commit himself to them. In other words, they believed in him, he didn't believe in them because he knew what was in him. So what's it mean? I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not going to try to be clear where God is vague. What I think it means is that from their perspective, it looked like they believed on him, but because Jesus knew what was in his heart, he didn't commit himself to them. He didn't believe in them because he knew it wasn't any more than skin deep. By the way, if you have a different take on that, it's okay. Someday we'll learn what it really means. Well, if you're saved, someday you'll learn what it really means. This much I do know. God knows every heart and every mind. We see people's bodies. We see their facial expressions. We hear their words. But we're all easily fooled. No one is fooling Jesus. Your words, my words, your outward appearance, my outward appearance, no one's fooling Jesus. He knows who's sitting here right now with a bitter spirit. He knows who's sitting here now and, and you literally right now, you just can't wait to get out of here. I have no idea. All I do is look on the outward appearance. Jesus knows what's inside us. And that's actually a fearful and an awesome thing. And he says that in verse 25. It needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Have you ever really thought about this? God knows what's in your heart and my heart, and he loves us anyway. See, you and I couldn't take what's in people's hearts. We couldn't take it. 
See, Jesus knows what's inside, and he not only loves us, when we believe, he commits himself to us. He just says, you know what, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. He said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He knows exactly what's in our hearts. He knows exactly what's in our mind. But he handles it way differently, and thank God, we don't know what's in everybody's hearts and mind, because quite frankly, it's difficult enough to deal with what's in our own. And though... This day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth may shock those who are unfamiliar with the real Jesus. He actually did the same thing again during the last week of his ministry because the house of God was something Jesus loved. The house of God was something about which Jesus was zealous And so this morning, what I'd like to do for just a few moments is make some observations and applications of the day Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time. Please, first, if you would, go in your scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. By the way, one of the best things any of us will ever do is allow any false perceptions about the real Jesus be changed to be like the real Jesus. If you don't like today's message, come back in a couple weeks. If I'm still alive and God doesn't change my heart, we'll be talking about the love of God. But today we're talking about the day he cleansed the temple. Here's the first thing this morning. Jesus loved the house of God and so should we. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul here says to Timothy, these things uh, write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You see, the New Testament church is not the house of God in the same sense that the Jewish temple was the house of God. The Jewish temple was the house of God because there in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant which represented the presence of God. Today, the best representative of that temple is a believer's body because God the Holy Spirit lives inside every believer's heart. But here, the church is called the house of God. Now, the furniture in the Jewish temple all pictured an aspect of the life or work of Jesus of Nazareth. Our furniture here doesn't picture anything. Uh, I asked competent people to pick stuff out. Say, why? Because I'm not competent in that. And now you can't blame me if you don't like something. See, here, even though church primarily is a called out assembly of baptized believers. Paul here calls the building where believers assemble the church and he calls it the house of God and exhorts Timothy to teach believers in Ephesus where he was pastoring to behave there. Uh, Though Bible Baptist Church is not the temple, uh, listen, it is the house of God and what happens here is a big deal. Uh, We saw earlier how the one place Jesus showed Physical righteous indignation was defending the house of God. Listen, if Jesus loved the house of God, so should those of us who want to be like Jesus. 
If Jesus was moved to righteous indignation when the house of God was genuinely turned into a house of merchandise or into a den of thieves, then you and I ought to be moved when something like that goes on in a place called the house of God. Listen, Paul told the Ephesian believers that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And Paul wanted to remind Timothy as he pastored in Ephesus, teach people the high value in the house of God and teach them to behave when they assemble there. You see, when you and I highly value the church like Christ loves the church, it completely changes how we prioritize it and what we want when we come here. There's something very wrong when Jesus takes the house of God so seriously, and some Christian leaders and some believers barely value it at all. There's something wrong when we don't make more effort to prepare our heart, our mind, and our appearance to go to the Lord's church. We don't make any more effort than we make to walk in the park. Listen, this is a special and an important place to our Savior. There's something wrong when we don't care if we stir up strife here. Don't care uh, who we offend or ignore here. Don't care whether we contribute or, or not here. Listen, this is a special place to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the house of God. There's something wrong when churches ordain women preachers. Something wrong when they ordain men whose behavior God describes as an abomination unto him. Listen, there's something wrong when the church is not more important than a sporting event or our backyard. There's something wrong when our attitude is casual instead of prayerful when we attend. When our mind is elsewhere instead of here, while our body is here. See, the answer to these things is not to quit the Lord's church. The answer to these things is to fix our heart. So, so we can assemble in a way that better pleases the Lord Jesus. Listen, there is a way to behave in the house of God. Now, in the New Testament, we are a family when we assemble. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not a solemn assembly of strangers. There should be laughter, interaction, love for one another, conversation. But this isn't just any place where we might do those things. This is the house of God. I know, we could debate, oh, you shouldn't sell candy bars or... You shouldn't give suckers to kids, and you shouldn't give medals to kids who do things that the Bible teaches that kids should do. Uh, listen, I'm not talking about that stuff today. But I am talking about this, prioritizing and treating this place and what goes on here like it's the house of God and that it matters. Let me ask you this morning, do you prioritize this place in your life? Do you treat the way you come as if it's the house of God or like going to Walmart? Do you love this place because it's the house of God? Or do you carelessly and casually approach this like you go back to your backyard? Do you take the time and make the effort to prepare your heart and mind before you come and participate with your heart? Or are you just going through the motions this morning, just making an appearance, just putting in your time, just here to see family and, and friends, just to see, well, I wonder what the preacher will say, whether he'll entertain me today or not. Why are you here? And this place and those like it are houses of God and Christ loved and vigorously defended the house of God. But it's not just that in the light of Christ's zeal for the house of God, 
you and I should increasingly love and invest ourselves in the church. Here's the second thing. There's a way we should behave ourselves in the house of God. We just read it. In fact, if we go back in the beginning of chapter 3 there, he begins by instructing Timothy about what the spiritual leader should be like. He says in verse 1, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And he goes on and on and on. You say, why? There's an order in the church. There's a way to behave. There's a way our leadership should be structured. God has expectations for those who would be pastors and expectations for those who would be leaders and expectations for those who would lead uh, a ministry, expectations for those who would sing a special. Listen, if you're going to step up and say, I want to serve Christ here, well, it, it matters. There's a way to behave, and behavior isn't just the right order in the church as far as leadership. Behavior that's right in the church also includes sound doctrine, and that's why after he talks about behaving in the church in chapter 4 of verse Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Here he talks about doctrine, and in particular, he warns about doctrines of devils in the latter times. Listen, you and I live in the last days of the last days. I don't know that there's ever been a time when there's more false doctrine and... <laughs> Things that mislead Christian people as available as they are today within the click of a mouse. God didn't put us in this day and age to fail. God did put us in this age to learn and stand for sound doctrine in a day and age when lots of people have forsaken that. Behavior has to do with leadership. Behavior has to do with doctrine. Listen, I've repeatedly warned you here about wolves in sheep's clothing. I've repeatedly warned you about bad behavior and false doctrine promoted by professing Christians. You and I need to flee to the safety of the Scripture. I like the song the girls sang this morning because we flee to the well-worn path of centuries of those who believe the Bible and believe the Lord Jesus and how they followed Him. Listen, you and I live in the heels of the greatest revival in English-speaking world and impact in the world since the first century apostles. We have a well-worn path. And if you're treating Christianity like it's your iPhone, which means the next issue out is better, and because it's newer, you're following something shiny that is not accurate. We are a part of something ancient. There is a path that our forefathers walked on who believed this book, and he raised you and I up in this generation to walk that path for Christ's sake. And do you value the order Christ established? God has a way he wants things done in his churches. Listen, when pastors ride to the platform swinging on a wrecking ball imitating Miley Cyrus, something's wrong. 
I wouldn't even have known Miley Cyrus had anything to do with a wrecking ball. And pastors ride a wrecking ball up to the platform. Listen, somebody needs to point out that stuff so God's people can get out of those places. When female pastors punt the Bible in Super Bowl services and serve alcohol, something's wrong in the house of God. And somebody needs to stand up and say, that's wrong. I don't care how many thousands of people they run. I don't care how nice their building is. Something's wrong when that's the behavior in the house of God. This is a sacred place. This is a holy place. This is where God is most honored. This is where his word is preached. This is where his glory comes. This is where his people assemble. And all that business needs to get out of here. And for those who follow Jesus, are you willing to put your attitude and behavior in the light of God's precious words? For those here who follow Jesus, are you here to decide that uh, being respectful and recognizing this place to be important, important are, are you ready to say that it matters? We wake up to the difference in the desires of your flesh and the desires of those who would walk in the Spirit. But it's not just that in light of Christ's zeal for the house of God. Hey, listen, you can get mad at me all you want. Jesus is the one that went in there and did something. Everybody here would say, you know, that's pretty extreme. That, that's pretty extreme. Now listen, I'm all over this room, there's people in here, you wish we were more like this world. Let me ask you a question. Has being more like the world helped American churches? Has the philosophy of talking out of one side of your mouth about how bad the world is and then talking out of the other side of your mouth that we need to be more like them to reach them, has that worked out well? But it's not just in light of Christ's zeal for God's house. We need to behave ourselves in God's, in the house of God. Here's the third and final thing, Matthew 21. Say, good, I'm glad you're on the final thing. Here's number three. We're going to get to the last week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus didn't do what we read about him doing in John chapter 2 every day. In fact, he seems to have not done it ever again for three years. And we get down to the last week of his ministry, and we get to number three, hindering people from finding Jesus or serving God is a big deal to Jesus. In Matthew 21, verse 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God, cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, the seats of them that sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple saying Hosanna to the son of David they were so happy no I'm sorry they were sore displeased and they said unto him hearest thou what these say and Jesus said unto them have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise and he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there uh, notice he goes in again he cleanses the temple and instead of it being a den of thieves now it's a place where people in verse 14 come and get healed and helped in verse 15 it's a place where children come and also serve god 
sing and say the praises of God. In verse 23, the next day, he says, when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority doest thou these things? Who gave thee this authority? Notice he also turned it into a place of teaching. See, Jesus had great respect for God's house, and he was greatly bothered when people's faith was hindered at God's house. I wish it were not true, but if you've been around church any length of time, you could tell story after story about how people who claimed to be Christian did ungodly things. Selfishly whisper criticisms about leaders when they don't really care about what's going on. Selfishly backstab other believers in the church when they have plenty of their own faults. I'd hate to stand in somebody's shoes when you face Christ and you cause somebody here to not be happy because of your backstabbing and gossip. I, I would hate to stand in Christ's presence. Listen, in a church like this, by and large, it's people's mouths that dishonor Christ more than any other thing. Well, I don't smoke, and I don't drink, and I don't chew, and I don't hang out with those who do. But listen, fine. Use your mouth in a way that glorifies Christ. People have stolen money, behaved immorally, treated God's house and God's people carelessly. I've heard stories of fistfights breaking out. People doing mass mailings to the congregation, airing their complaints. People posting on Facebook this or that about church leaders and church people. Listen, not only is it terrible because that person is a pawn in the hand of the devil. It's terrible because of the people that are hurt. You know, there are people like me, 39 years ago when I came to the church, I knew nothing, nothing. I did not know anyone. I did not have any family there. I had an acquaintance from work who invited me. I didn't know Bible doctrine. I did not know anything. I don't know where I'd be today. But I suspect it wouldn't be here if I'd have known about that stuff at the time. Or that would have been the first thing I was exposed to. Please hear me. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. When someone comes in an area of the church we are and we don't know them and we don't say anything. It's a big deal. It's a big deal when you're harsh, cold, when we represent the meekest, gentlest, most loving individual who ever walked this planet. Please, stop hindering people and be more like Jesus. You'd quietly stand.